Hey, everybody. I'm Ray Wong. Welcome to The Green Room. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Liz Miller. And of I'm course, Vala. our producer, Elle. Huh? I'm Vala. I've uh, oh, Vala. That's right. I'm That's Vala. Vala. Right. I thought that was the you're, promise you're... that was made. I don't understand what's going on. Uh, I don't know, but we're in the green room. I'm not sure what's going on. I thought we we're talking about the Fed and Jackson Hole at this moment. It was Kansas City Fed's meeting, but this is not it. Uh, but if you're following along, uh, we're in the green room where we introduce our guests. So and we do them in reverse order. So Michelle, um, jump in. Tell us where you're calling in from and what are we talking about and why so much joy? Yeah, well, I'm calling in from Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, University of Michigan. Um, go blue. Yeah, go blue. Woohoo. Um, and I'm going to be explaining why aiming for imperfection when it comes to our intentional eating and exercise plans is actually the recipe for lasting success for most people. Wow. Very, very cool. We'll go deep on that in a bit. And of course, we got Hamza Khan, Brian Solis. Hamza, tell us exactly uh, where are you calling from? What are you talking about? Uh, hi, well, very happy to be here. I'm calling in from uh, Northern California. I'm based in London. Uh, I work at McKinsey and um, I've been leading a lot of our thinking on uh, the metaverse and uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll be speaking about why we are excited about it and uh, what we think organizations should be thinking of. Very, very cool. Exciting. Brian, where are you calling in from? What are you talking about today? You're everywhere these days. I, I, I am. I'm trying to keep up with you. I'm, I'm in Lake Tahoe right now uh, and I uh, am also... Uh, a twin to Hamza. We got the memo about white shirts today. Yep. Uh, and we, we are also collaborators on his recent uh, metaverse report. And I will be here to compliment uh, Hamza and uh, further discuss some interesting ideas and immediate opportunities for the metaverse. Oh my God, it's one of my favorite topics. I was just sitting next to someone yesterday talking the same thing. He just wrote a book. He works for Mark Cuban. You guys know who that guy is. So very, very fun. We're going to get all the metaverse folks together in one room. All right, with that, we turn it back to you, L, and we can kick it off. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome to Disrupt TV. I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research with my awesome co-host here, Liz Miller, sitting in for the one and only Vala Afshar. And of course, you're here with our show. We are on episode number 291, and we're super excited to be here. Liz is our vice president and principal analyst looking at all things customer experience. And of course, you can follow her on Liz K. Miller. Uh, but as you know, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And who do we have to kick it off today? We've got Hamza Khan, a partner of McKinsey & Company. He's the co-leader of growth, marketing, and sales practice in McKinsey's UK and Ireland office. He co-wrote McKinsey's recent report on value creation in the metaverse and is both supporting clients on planning for the metaverse and continuing to shape McKinsey's perspectives on it. He's also been an avid gamer since the 80s, and we're going to have to talk more about that. And of course, he's joined with his dynamic twin, Brian Solis. They're in the same shirts today, as you notice. The global innovation evangelist at Salesforce and an eight-time best-selling author. I have, I think, seven of his eight books. I'm not sure which one I'm missing. But Brian is the global innovation evangelist at Salesforce and one of the global leaders in CRM, as we know. Brian's work at Salesforce is on thought leadership and research that explores digital transformation, innovation and disruption, CX commerce, and of course, the cognitive enterprises. Brian has been called one of the greatest digital analysts of all time, and I agree with that statement. And he's also a world-renowned keynote speaker and an award-winning author of eight, eight best-selling books, including X. Oh my God, I forgot to bring my copy, The Experience When Business Meets Design, What's the Future and Business and the End of Business as Usual, which I actually do have. And of course, his latest book, Lifescale, is one that you should be reading. So 
Uh, so with that, let's kick it off and you know join them. So welcome, welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Ah, I do love thank you. I do, I do love the twinning, but oh my gosh, there's so much to get into. Can I just like roll right into the first question, right? No, no, Liz. Actually, we did want to share with you that it's a metaphor for digital twinning in the metaverse. So that's it's what well, the story yeah. Is. I, my metaphor is like a glitter cannon, usually filled with purple glitter. That when someone says metaverse, I go and it just flies all over the place, and it's kind of awesome. But with that, Hamza, I'm dying to okay. I want you to take us under the hood. You guys have just, and, and at McKinsey, you just released value creation in the metaverse. I think everyone is asking that question. Like the metaverse sounds awesome, but for a business, for enterprises, where are we starting to look? And you released this report earlier this year. Take us under the hood. Tell us how did this research even come about and what surprised you the most about the findings? Um, big starting question. Um, I know. We'll, I don't uh, put a little on these things. Yeah. Don't okay. pull Come on. <laughs> good, good. But then let's get into it. So there is, I mean, you 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 may have heard of it, right? There's a bit of hype around the term right now. But uh, but also no, we do think <laughs> we do think despite the debate, right? And the debate is hype, there's like skepticism, all sorts of things you can apply to it. But there is um there is ample value to unlock in the future. And the aim of the report was to separate the two, right? So for our client executives, help them understand what actions, if any, to take right now or to start planning for right now. Um, and the report builds on a number of sources of insights, right? So we ran consumer research with roughly three and a half thousand respondents globally, with roughly 450 business leaders across sectors, across geographies. Um, we interviewed 10 plus metaverse builders um and and sort of digital innovation thinkers brian was one of them as well and so uh, i would highly recommend reading at least that part of the report um and then we had a value estimation approach right and, I, and the thing that i would say on that is it it, it 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 like the number that we came out with like was big in media and everything but the thing the caveat that i would put on that is we're continuing to refine that um it is it is a very sort of bottom-up driven value estimation approach we've spoken to 50 people have it multiple use cases and but uh, just the, the space is evolving so fast um, that we continue to update sort of our own projections on it as well. But all of that came together in the report, um, which we launched a couple of months ago. Uh, that was that was more sort of the approach of how it came together. We've been thinking about this for over a year now. Uh, we've been getting lots of client requests and, 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 and conversations going on this as well. So we thought we'd just like put it out there and see um, and see what people thought. The um, uh, so that's where it was. I don't know if I answered at least the first part of the question. You did. Right. Point, yeah. You get points for the first half, but the second half of what surprised you the most? So um, the big thing that I found surprising was how many of our, both our consumer respondents as well as business leaders are active already in large online worlds that I will not call the metaverse right now, but like online worlds that are sort of the proto metaverse, if I can borrow that term, uh, that seed what will eventually be the metaverse, right? And so we're talking to the tune of um, roughly 80% of our consumer respondents actively engaged in online worlds, 60% of them trend, very excited about transitioning some parts of their day-to-day -day lives to an online world, right? And I'm again, mm -hmm. not using the term metaverse, but like an online, a virtual version of that activity. 80% um, have made some sort of transactions in virtual worlds over the last 12 months. So these are big numbers, right? And then if I talk about the other side of it, um, we had roughly 95% of the 450 executives we surveyed saying that they expect the metaverse to eventually have a positive impact on their industries and their organizations. Like McKinsey runs ample research with executives globally. We don't see 95%. That's very rare <laughs> to see everyone saying, yes, it's going to have a positive effect, right? We're not there yet. It's very clear, but we need to start thinking about what we, uh, where we need to be in a couple of years from now. So, so just the level of excitement and, and, and I guess the, the breadth of it to me was surprising. Yeah, I mean, this is a definitely a crazy space. I mean, we've been looking at early as well, right? And I mean, there's there's different aspects of it, right? You've got, you know, the world, you've got the interfaces, you've got like the blockchain tech, the Web3 on the back end, right? All these different things are popping up. And uh, I mean, when you think about these markets uh, for, for both of you, like what are, what are useful use cases, right? I mean, we mapped 43, but you know, we're just taking a shot at what's up there. You guys probably did more research into this, like more in depth. Where, where are people starting? Let's even go there. 
Yeah, we're, I think we're in the same boat as you, right? So we're map mapping different use cases as well right now and thinking through not just sort of the, the value of it, but also how will they come to life, right? Um, I'd say on my earlier point in the value, we think the metaverse will impact all sectors, including the public sector, right? So this isn't just like different, different industries. Um, uh, and that's why you see tech and gaming companies, brands, the public sector, right? So this isn't just like different. Whoa, can you hear that? I got a bit of background. Sorry. So that's why I paused. Um, but uh, so that's why brands, investors, everyone are jumping into it. Um, you see large sort of institutional investors putting a lot of funding behind that as well. Um, so there is example on the public sector real quickly. I'm, I'm going to like visualize here's what here's what like a brand new building is going to look like in the environment. Am I going to yeah. do training and onboarding for folks? Hey, check out my pothole. I just took a picture of it. Can you fix it? Like, like what, what level do you see that in the public sector? Um, my local council asks to do something, you know, we're having a town meeting. All of that, all, all, all of that. Right. And so you're seeing examples of city governments um, that already had like an ambitious digital agenda get into the metaverse already. Right. So we're talking about Seoul, Dubai cities and uh, so every, everywhere from Seoul, Shanghai, Dubai to now Rome and Milan, of course, as well. But it is um, it is just a new way of interacting with citizens and a new way of providing public services right and getting to engage with them and getting to actually have a two-way conversation with them which just hasn't been the case as much um and uh and and so 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 it is big right like we can we can have a very long debate about what the final number is in terms of the value creation potential what i will tell you is i'm fairly confident it's large and it's large and it's cross-sector and it's cross-geography right um and so it warrants the debate and the thinking right now uh use cases the first big set we've seen has been around uh marketing and consumer engagement and sort of just building the basics and in some ways again that's that's often like that's often like an argument that goes against the term the metaverse that it's all just in marketing i don't think that's there's anything wrong with that i think that's just how we establish the basics right that's how we establish sort of how we interact with people how we how 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 peers interact with each other as well and that's been sort of the first big wave but now we're starting to get broader than that right now we're starting to talk about um healthcare for example now we're talking about public sector now we're talking about manufacturing right and what does that look like we're talking about how does it look like to have sort of the b2b end of marketing and sales and co-design and co-creation with customers as well um and a lot of that is coming to fruition it will take time right we're still very much in the early early days of it but i get encouraged by things like every month or so we're seeing advances in interfaces and devices and so now there's a new one uh, that, that, of course, Meta's announced is coming out next month in October, I think, as well. Um, so th this whole thing around we're years away from it, maybe, right? But like we're continuing to take steps towards it. And every single step is, uh, is just, it's exciting. It unlocks new value. Yeah. And I, I certainly see the all those steps. I mean, everything, Hamza, that you're bringing up, we're seeing it in marketing, we're seeing it in sales, we're seeing it in service. Like every day we're seeing new advances in this in, in service. So Brian... I want to ask you this because you and I often get chances to talk about things like CX and marketing and engagement. What do companies really have to start thinking about now and looking at now when it comes to mapping and really delivering these new co-created experiences in the metaverse? Like what does that human virtual interface start to look like? I think it's going to look like a whole bunch of things and some of it is going to suck. Uh, and some of it isn't. And uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, Hamza and I had a, a lot of a lot of time to explore, you know, what we're seeing out there and what we'd like to see. And Hamza and I are also working with uh, Salesforce customers on helping them to imagine new possibilities. And I think that's the answer right there is that executives don't know what they don't know. And so they tend to lean on what they know from, you know, it's a human, it's human nature, right? And so that's why you see things like marketing as an early adopter. But some of the scenarios, uh, for example, one of which that Hamza and I are working on together, imagines an entirely different way to take sort of this proto metaverse, uh, as Hamza referred to it earlier, to create iterative steps to a more immersive web or an immersive experience. And so imagine if you created your own branded metaverse and in that branded metaverse, you can engage people in ways that 3D and immersion and maybe even blockchain facilitate that are more native 
to that type of user than a traditional web experience. And so what you do is you help executives see what they couldn't see before and understand that in many ways they're not designing for themselves. They're designing for a different type of user and helping them to engage, whether it's training, whether it's digital twinning and replicating for city planning, as, as Ray brought up earlier, it's a, it's a, it's a more immersive way to get people to the next stage. And it's going to continue to iterate over time until, you know, it becomes whatever it becomes. But the same thing could be true for retail. It's another example that Hans and I discussed, which is a more immersive 3D uh, way of exploring a shopping experience that you can't do with today's 90s style 2D digital catalog way of shopping. So those are just some some ideas. Yeah, no, this is a great point, right? And I think, you know, Hamza, in your study, right, you looked about 5 trillion for the metaverse economy by 2030. Uh, we have bigger numbers, like 20.7 trillion. I'll explain those another day when we get some drinks. I mean, but but we see some huge opportunities. Like the entire U.S. commerce uh, market today is about, uh, you know, 11 trillion today, right? Uh, and, and that could be the entire world's market by 2030 as people are transacting in the metaverse. You can see these kinds of numbers are, are behind that. But tell us, like, when you look at these numbers, right, I mean, does it like do, do CXO say, I got to get be part of this. I need to be part of this action now. I, I need to get my foot and toe into this so that I can get started. Uh, what, what's driving the sizable impact? Um, so, so the, so again, my caveat, the 5 trillion is, is a number that we continue to refine, but we're fairly confident it's large, right? I think we're also fairly confident about the fact you actually, you actually just mentioned it yourself, Ray, and I think Brian, you were alluding to it too. A large part of that five trillion is driven by e-commerce and service, which is very closely linked to e-commerce and how that becomes more immersive, right? Um, and it's not like this hasn't just come up with the term the metaverse. We've already seen that shift towards social, towards social commerce, now immersive commerce. So it's this is like an ongoing journey we're on, right? But what is the next wave of immersive retail and immersive service look like? Um, that effectively drives a lot of value, right? Um, Roughly half of our five trillion number is actually the next wave of e-commerce across sectors, across geographies, but all sort of more immersive virtual commerce. Um, why executives are excited about it? There's actually a number of different things at play, I think. Some of this is sort of just what I'm hearing as well and not just from the research. But there is a general um, sentiment of a lot of businesses felt that they were late to e-commerce to social commerce, to now like more immersive commerce as well. And I think there is that lesson that's been learned from previous waves where businesses just don't want to be a step or two behind this time around, right? And so some of that comes across maybe as like enthusiasm that um, still needs to be tempered a bit uh, or needs to be substantiated with the right use cases. So exactly the question you asked, but I think that enthusiasm just drives us forward, right? Like the, the question to ask is it's less about what is it that I can do in the metaverse? It's more about how is it, Brian, exactly what you were saying, right? How is it that the metaverse helps me drive the customer experience I want to drive, the business growth I want to drive, right? So it's more about the core business goals and how the metaverse helps drive those as opposed to what's the shiny new thing I can do in, in virtual worlds. Yeah. And on it, that, it, you know, it comes, it comes to the title of your report, value creation in the metaverse. Yeah. Exactly yeah. Brian, it brings me to a question because, okay, I'm just going to put my devil's advocate hat on just for a second. I'm just going to be that brat. Um, Not like you. I know. What? Me? Who? No. Um, if we looked at that stage of like, let's say Web 2.0, right, where it was supposed to be all about dynamic interchange and dynamic kind of those bi-directional conversations, right? Um, we're looking at the metaverse. Now we're talking about immersive. Everything's going to be that co-created universe. But you know what? There are a lot of people still stuck on trying to figure out how to get that dynamic, right? Like in and out and how to achieve that. So when we really start to think about where we are now with this concept of the metaverse, where do you see us now and where are we going to go? We talk about the proto metaverse, but what are those hallmarks of the metaverse? Like, how do we know we're there? Well, the report that Hamza uh, published lays out some pretty awesome, not just cases, but things to think about in terms of iterations. The way I see it is, you know, if, if Metaverse 1.0 could be like second life, you know, if, if we wanted to sort of visualize something and Metaverse 2.0 is maybe this decentralized, portable, uh, sovereign identity, uh, digital wallet you know, idea, then where we're going to be here in the next 
I'd say one to two years is this concept of metaverse 1.5, which is building intentional or purpose built experiences while you experiment in all the other ones. But I think the ones that are going to have the greatest value are purpose built to help number one, give the organization the expertise it needs in order to design and, and deliver value. But two, really start to explore then where they can take it from there once they build that experience. Because I think a lot of the decision makers today, uh, as Hamza was saying, that they don't want to miss out, but they also don't know what to do. Uh, and you have to help them imagine by connecting the dots between where their audience is, where that audience is, how that audience is evolving, and then how these technologies can deliver better experiences than you can get through the, the web. And let's also remember, too, that even though we're on you know, both the metaverse and and Web3 are very much early in the hype cycle, they are going to iterate. Uh, and like Web 2.0, as you brought up, and Web 1.0, they they will all coexist. They still coexist. And I think, you know, they're different people are going to need different experiences. But I can tell you that those who are growing up in virtual worlds, playing games, uh, using apps with completely different interfaces, wearing Oculus, you know, those those are going to be the people that are going to need a more native, immersive experience. This is going to be amazing. This is cool. But hey, before we go, we can't let this sit. What is your favorite 80s game, Hamza? The oh, <laughs> important wow. stuff. Come on. Um, yeah. I mean, the <laughs> oldest ones I can remember are like the black and white version of Prince of Persia and the old Street Fighter games. I, I spent far too much time on those. That's uh, 90s, man. That's 90s, man. We, we got to talk like Asteroids oh, and like oh, Zach Pitfall. Pitfall for me. Pitfall. Pitfall, exactly. Pitfall was fantastic. Division. Um, <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, yep. Awesome. All right. Well, hey, we'll all see you in the metaverse. Maybe a meetup for a physical meetup in the metaverse at Dreamforce. You're here with Hamza Khan, partner at McKinsey and Company, Brian Solis, global innovation evangelist at Salesforce, and eight time best selling author. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll meet you all in the metaverse. Take care. Thanks for having us. Take care. Thank you. Woohoo. All right. Who do we have next? Glitter Cannon. Yeah. Glitter oh, Cannon. There she oh. is. <laughs> hey, our next guest is Maylin Fung, co-founder and chair of the People-Centered Internet. She's been chair since 2020 of the People-Centered Internet, which she co-founded with Vinton Cerf, the founder of the Internet, the godfather of the Internet, uh, in 2015. <laughs> Why? Well, it's about building resilient communities with digital finance, harnessing data so that communities connected in networks within and between countries and among them so they can all and all the community members can thrive. So Mailing's been everywhere. She's been invited to give the closing keynote at the World Bank IFC Global SME Finance Forum in 2020. She's been talking about the decade of transformational socio-technical lead for federal health futures as a contractor for the U.S. DOD. And she also engaged with the senior leaders across the U.S. Fed system and private sector from 2011 to 2013. But she is really the godmother of CRM, working first with Tom Siebel and then, of course, working with Salesforce and, of course, starting things like CRM Talk, building customer lifetime value and, of course, helping out with Paul Greenberg in the speed of light. So um, there's a lot here, um, but she's also the chair of the core planning committee for Douglas Engelbart. If you all remember him, the inventor of the computer mouse uh, and a number of things from Windows to the modern systems we have today. Uh, and while at SRI led the ARC lab team that was second node on the internet. So Malin's an active senior member of the IEEE serving the executive committee uh, for humanitarian activities committee. And of course the Society for Social Implications of Technology where she chairs the sustainability technical committee. She also serves on the advisory council of GovStat a UN initiative to develop common technology building blocks for government services and is on the boards of MoHuman and Design for Change. So Maylin's is, uh, well, you can follow Maylin under her Twitter handle at M-E-I-L-I-N-F-U-N-G. Welcome to the show. Really happy to be here. Hey, Liz. Good to you. Hi. <laughs> We're nice so excited to, to have you. So. Nice to be back. You know, um, that was an awful long list of all the things that you're the godmother of. That was that was impressive. That's a lot of juggling. But when I think of you, I think of you as the godmother of where social impact and technology and data and digital meet, right? You have really been one of the leading and first voices in that, raising that importance around that social impact, social awareness. So I want to ask you this question to start. 
the concept of supply chains, they, they've been around forever. I mean, for, since the first time someone decided to put like sugar water into a Coca-Cola bottle, we've been talking about supply chains, right? Um, but what's a digital supply chain? Well, I think the future of supply chains uh, really is going to be a drastic change. We can no longer live with global supply chains that were developed solely for profit-making multinationals. Now, I think multinationals are wonderful. They've brought a lot of economic activity all over the world. But with the supply chains that maximize their profit means that so many people that are involved with producing, for example, agricultural produce, their needs and their um, requirements are not taken into account. So the digital supply chain would actually be one that allows participation by all. And by that, I want to give an example. Today, if um, a big uh, company producing consumer uh, beverages, say, um, wants to source products from a farmer, they arrange for a ship to go and pick it up. And say the ship's two days late. The farmer has invested their life savings in producing this crop, gets it to the port. It's two days late. It gets mildewed, and the entire cost of that is borne by the person least able to bear it, who is the farmer. And the, the global supply chains are all organized around, okay, let's make sure that the big companies don't pay anything that they don't need to. Well, you know, the world is changing. Just as child labor became an issue for fashion companies, um, these kinds of stories are not going to be good for people who are selling you chocolate. And so um, as digital begins to inform consumers about the provenance of all of the components of the supply chain that are required to deliver the final product, we are going to see much more requirements that sustainable designs for supply chain are integrated into the supply chains of the future. And I'm working on that with the UN, uh, looking at the digital building blocks for governments who are some of the biggest procurers in the world. And so if we can integrate government procurement requiring the sort of the augmentation of the digital supply chain uh, to allow for equity and fairness, I think everybody can win. I call it a digital nervous system. Wow. So, hey, Maylin, in your DNS, right, that's one of the uh, business use cases that you're talking about for this digital supply chain. It also sounds like what you're talking about here is sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? Creating some transparency in, in terms of understanding where this is. Uh, what, what are other business use cases, right? You talk about provenance. Uh, one of the things that we can do is, is really highlight things like, you know, where something's located, right? You can even get to how much water was consumed. You can look at what their scope two, scope three is in the transit of that, right? And, you know, where do, where do you want to go with this? Is it a marketplace? Do you want to send some value on the back end, right? Is there, is there an auction against this? Do people say there's certain levels of quality I want in my supply chain? Here are the requirements that I need in procurement. It, it sounds like that might be the direction you're talking about. I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, I wouldn't choose anybody better to put words in my mouth, Ray. Um, I actually just was interviewed this morning by uh, uh, the Media Tech Hub asking, how did I see this working out with video streaming, for example? Um, so with video streaming, there the are quality codes that are emerging, uh, the quality of the video but there's also the provenance of the video where, where, you know, there's fake news and fake information. How do you know what the provenance of the video that you're watching is? And there's new sorts of coding that's coming up where it's going to be hard to, to, to code something that's fake when it's it needs to be coded according to what it actually is. Like, like watermarks on paper, right? So Yeah. We're talking here about the energy coding of video. There's ah. actually a projection that says that information technology will consume 30% of all of the energy in the world. And it's growing really, really fast. 
So IT energy consumption, um, just like digital, is expanding. And so we have to be much more clear on the energy usage of algorithms, data centers, and video. Because as um, digital transformation is happening in countries all over the world, the interest and demand for video streaming is just going to shoot up. Um, and video streaming is highly energy intensive. If we can make inroads into compression of video, uh, remote distribution, so that you don't have to send all of it to every household, but you send a compressed part and it gets decompressed near your home, then the, the full uh, volume so this is everything, right? This is the Kodak. This is like the efficiency of the algo. This is, oh, uh, yeah, your your data center here is coming from, you know, geothermal. And, you know, this one's coming from, you know, carbon. This one's coming from a mix, right? So you're getting down to that level of detail, right? Because we're in a digital supply chain. You can do that. That's right. And, and it's not just um, the different sources. It's every minute every second so I, are you where are you getting it from perhaps you know the first half of your episode was very energy intensive because it came all the way from far away but the second half was not yeah so many so many of these kind of concepts and ideas especially for this type of visibility this type of environmental vis visibility this type of kind of um equity visibility have been things people have been talking about for a really long time but when you're talking about this new marketplace and this new expectation what do we really need to have and what do we need to deliver to make trading in this type of marketplace where equity and this this type of visibility is so forward what do we need to have to make this successful well there was another huge transformation that happened in the global supply chain 50 years ago and that was shipping containers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it made a huge difference. Where everybody had the same shipping container that would fit in. So I think what we have to do is come up with uh, the new standards. Mm. And the new standards mean that those that are willing to uh, uh, conform to the new standards will use less energy, will be more sustainable, and the people who can design things that fit into the digital nervous system shipping containers, um, they'll make more money because they're, they're doing it at the level of maturity that the world demands. Because the next generations they are already facing far more in terms of wildfires, floods. Um, they're seeing it every day. It's no longer a possible disaster. The disaster is affecting the air they breathe and the water they're not able to drink. So um, we can't go on business as usual thinking that we have an infinite supply of energy uh, for our technology. Yeah, I mean, we're just talking about the metaverse. The metaverse is going to consume a ton of uh, power uh, just to make that happen. And, and I think that's that's a, that's a great example of that. So when you talk to folks in the finance world, right, investors, and we think about people who might you know, be early adopters, like who are they, right? Uh, what have you identified? Like who's that target audience? Who's the folks that are you know excited and, and kind of behind all this? Wow, who is not? Really, uh, uh, you know, Larry Fink at BlackRock has said, we will consider your sustainability impact when you do your annual report. And there's a lot of greenwashing going on now because there aren't a lot of good impact measures. So people are coming up with something, putting it in so that they can stay in BlackRock's portfolio and all the other hedge funds that are following and saying, we need to see some sustainability measures in your annual reports. Otherwise, we won't have you in our portfolio. So we've seen that with Bloomberg. We've seen other ESG standards, S&P, like the other ones that are being created around the globe uh, that are happening there. Right. I, I think SEC uh, looked at adopting those and I think they're adopting it. We'll see some kind of stuff. Uh, right. But but standards are important. Right. We're, we're seeing a, a number of different standards. Uh, 
So, so are there fake standards? Is that what you can say? Like people are just kind of making up standards in the moment as we're getting there or, right? Or are we getting to emerging kind of some agreement as to what those standards are? So, so, so I, I happen to be working in that area. You ask the best questions, right? Well, I mean, SAS feeds popping up, right? And I got yeah. Doug Henschens on our team. He's, he's like, he's like very active on it. We've got to get you together because he's organizing a dinner for during climate week, uh, on, uh, you know, to get folks together who are on our ESG 50, but you know, it, it's stuff like that. I mean, I, I love them the more. So, so, so. Um, I'm working through the IEEE. So I founded the IEEE um, uh, pre-standards -work, pre uh, working group on social impact measurement. And why we did that is that uh, the, at the time we started it back in 2018, there were 170 yes. different standards. Everybody and the 171st would come along and say, I will be the standard that rules them all. And then they become the 171st. And like all good standards committees. <laughs> right. So, so we actually took an idea of Douglas Engelbart. You see, in technology, this is happening all the time. Think about the 801.3 stand. The standards that are happening for cell phones, for television. There's a lot of competing standards. But then in the end, you all kind of agree on a common standard. This is the stand that IEEE is bringing up, that we are wasting money and time by having all of these competing standards. And can a technical approach offer anything different? Because what we did find is that these standards are being proposed very often by non-technical people. And, and yet there are resolutions that are possible. So the resolution that we're proposing is called the hypercatalog. So oh, it was wow. an idea by uh, Douglas Engelbart that in fact, you allow all of these different ways of communicating, but you kind of create a thesaurus, right? You say, okay, um, this is how they describe this. This is like this, this is not, an, it's, it's this plus two equals the other one. Um, and in fact, the best real life example is the Oxford English Dictionary. Okay. <laughs> so the French have an academy and they define the meaning of each French word. But the Oxford English Dictionary told in that movie with Mel Gibson, uh, the professor and the madman, uh, the English called it usage. And so if you look at the word set, that's one of the, has the most usages in the English language. And they provide every usage down from the first usage. So we are taking that approach that we're saying usage is more important than defining a single standard, but by categorizing and listing the usages, we can see what is most useful for actually achieving the final outcomes we want. We've been spending our time on the wrong thing we shouldn't just be arguing about my usage is better than your usage, but we yep. should be saying, which is working to reduce carbon, which is working yep. to help people thrive. So this is in fact where CRM should be coming in. And I wanna yep. talk about two conversations I've had with CRM people over the last couple of days. Ah. CRM, uh -huh was originally designed to help you look at the entire timeline between uh, getting a lead and becoming a customer and becoming an ongoing customer. Okay, so the longitudinal tracking was the big breakthrough for CRM because before that people were saying, Melan, why do you need to work on this? We have contact managers. No. Go mine, go mine, go mine. Act was great. <laughs> exactly, they said, Acts cut the market, don't even bother. Anyway, CRM, $40 billion later. <laughs> the 20th same, anniversary of a big CRM company coming up. Yeah, I mean, look at that. The same idea can be taken to social impact. Okay, mm. longitudinal tracking, they call it logic models. What's the input? What's the output? What's the impact? What's the outcome? Actually, it's outcome and then impact. Outcome and we impact. need to measure this. So my I throw down the gauntlet to everybody who aspires to be a CRM company that this is the big opportunity of the future to track 
social impact because then you can actually see if you're a government where are you helping your citizens right. it's not about how much money you put into the irs it's actually how much people feel that the money that they're paying to the irs is resulting in good services for citizens or a better future for their children wow it's a prospective study that drives your hyper catalog so that you can actually get more responsive government or more responsive or yeah, businesses. It's it's it is amazing that you know I think that people lose sight of the fact that um, it's okay to want to be really good at business because it allows you to do better in the world and allows you to to do all of those big aspirational programs that change the world. And I think people are a little hesitant to want to lean into that, but I think if they have that capacity to measure, have that capacity to see that longitudinal capacity for change it changes the hesitation you know because it's not cause washing i didn't pink wash because it's april um so i i love it i think it's fantastic is so is that is that top of mind for you right now what any any other burdening issue you want to close this out with here um i think that you got 30 seconds i know <laughs> the burning issue is feedback mm. and that's why it's a crm issue love it feedback we need to have reality check all our crazy ideas. We have no dynamic feedback and signal intelligence. Those two things are killing us. I, I definitely yeah. agree with you. We're with Maylin Fung, co-founder and chair of the People-Centered Internet, a social impact pioneer in all counts. You can follow her on Twitter at Maylin Fung. And Maylin, I'll see you soon. So we've got to yes. grab lunch. Okay, <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Wow. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I can fill my brain with any more, but now I've got so many questions for Michelle. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And now we've got our next guest, an amazing, amazing NIH funded researcher at University of Michigan, award winning. Also, more importantly, she's just written a new book. So we're going to spend some time with Michelle Seeger. Uh, Michelle is an award winning researcher at the University of Michigan and health coach almost 30 years studying how to create sustainable changes in healthy behaviors that can survive the complexity and unpredictability of the real world. Her translational research is widely recognized as relevant and practical. She's an advisor to the WHO and was named inaugural chair of the United States National Physical Activity Plans Communication Committee and has been an advisor to the Department of Health, DHHS, and former director of the University of Michigan Sports, Health, and Activity Research and Policy Center. More importantly here, we're here to talk about her new book, The Joy Choice. It came out April and it showcases the exciting new science and method for breaking down all or nothing thinking and cultivating the in-the-moment decisions that support self-care, health and well-being, and in my mind, also leadership and management. So welcome to the show, Michelle. It's great to be here. Oh my God. Okay. So uh, it's been a crazy summer. And my husband and I sat down and we we're like, okay, it's been a crazy summer. We did not exactly keep our healthy choices through the summer. Darn it. It's going to be fit timber, fit timber. <laughs> here we come. And now we are sitting around being like, so fit tober. Like, do we look at that? <laughs> so typical approach to behavior change, typical approach to kind of any type of change, right? We, we set that goal. We're like all or nothing. Let's go in like a new year's resolution. What's the problem with that? Why do so many of us, you know, fail? Is that the right word? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. And, and this conversation, even though it seems like a different topic from the other um, interviews you had, it really has, it intersects with a lot of the themes like sustainability and energy management and um, contribution and, and, you know, all of these things. So here's what happens. And it's because it goes back to what Brian said, people don't know what they don't know. And so what happens is that because of the old story of behavior change, the passe story of behavior change, we've been taught to uh, initiate a change in behavior, healthy eating, getting more sleep, exercising more. We've been taught to think about it as this ideal. We're going to do it right. We're going to achieve it all. And it's based on ideals. And this happens, we create these ideals and these ideal plans in a motivation bubble. So it doesn't matter mm. whether it's New Year's, it doesn't matter whether it's swimsuit season or an upcoming wedding or bar mitzvah, mm. we make these plans, but guess what? What, what are bubbles? 
they're super weak and vulnerable. And all it takes is a bubble, you know, you blow it and it seems really cool, but all it has to do is bump up against one thing and it goes like that. And that is how most of us have learned to approach starting to exercise and get fit and eat better. Um, so that's the answer to your question is we've been, it's, we've been taught to do it in a motivation bubble that just bursts on impact with regular life. My bubbles have been bursting all over. I got, I'm not going to lie, Michelle. They are banging into things left and right. Let's, let's not do that anymore. <laughs> That's easy to say. And so we got habiters and inhibitors you talk about in your book, right? Uh, what are they and why they're so distinct, right? And it's a very important concept uh, in terms of your book. So uh, why, why is that the case? Sure. So another thing is part of um, what I'm calling the old story of behavior change is we've been taught that putting, we do so much of our life on autopilot that let's put our exercise and healthy eating on autopilot too. And hey, who doesn't want that? Um, it kind of works with flossing, right? We don't have to think about flossing. We just do it when we brush our teeth at night. But the problem is, is that there are assumptions underlying creating these automatic habits that we don't have to think about doing. And one of the assumptions is that everyone can form automatic habits for, and here's the key word, complex, healthy behaviors, like okay. an exercise. Okay. So it's the difference between getting, helping people learn how to have automatic habits when they're making espressos at a cafe or flossing our teeth. Those are very mechanical, simplistic behaviors. But now let's, you know, let's shape shift into another universe where we have to exercise. We might have to change our clothes. We might have to transport kids places. We might run into traffic. There's so many things that revolve around making this complex behavior happen. Well, how are we going to automate that? And so, um, that a habiter is someone who tends to have an innate uh, disciplined personality. And my husband is one of these lucky folks who does what they say they're going to do. There aren't a lot of disruptions. Their life um, runs according to their to-do lists and plans, gets up at 530 in the morning, exercises, in fact, sleeps with exercise clothes. A lot of people who are habiters do this. So there's no friction. There's no thing needed before you get on the exercise bike. Um, but that model and that personality depends on predictability. And others of us, including myself, whom, whom I call unhabiters, are people who don't have the predictability or discipline to um, not have the noise that disrupts uh, uh, the automatic habit from forming and sticking. So that's Can be learned. Is that like a learned behavior or is that something that's just innate? Can you say that again? Can it be learned or is that innate? So, you know, I don't believe there's a, a hundred percent truth for, for everyone, but in general, um, research suggests that uh, people who tend to successfully form habits do tend to have a more disciplined personality, score higher on measures of self-control. So I think in there's a generality going on here, but that doesn't mean someone who's really focused and committed can't learn to do it. I just don't think most people can. I, I feel like we have a micro case study of habiters and unhabiters at Constellation Research, and we're a small group. Because when you described a habiter, I actually put in the chat, oh my gosh, Holger Mueller is a habiter. Like, full stops, like German, habiter. Like, yes. I, I, yes. Instantly, I was like, oh my God. And I am I am so the unhabiter. It's a, it, was, it was so interesting in reading your background and reading kind of the, you know, about this big idea that you have of the joy choice, right? So, you know, really focusing in on the fact that it's a choice and they, that there are choice points. And I, I'm super curious, how do you successfully navigate those choice points? What are they? Can we see them? Is there a hallmark to them? Can there be a red shining flashing light just for mine so I can see where they are, please? Yes. So <laughs> this, is, this is how we escape in a way the motivation bubble problem, because 
what we're doing is we're going from just this initial period of ideals and talking about, well, how do we sustain it long term? And what that means is, is that we have to toss the ideal mentality. Again, not everyone has to, but I would say most people have to because it hasn't worked for most people. And we need to think about how we're going to navigate those disruptions that happen unexpectedly that we can't predict in our daily lives. And those are called choice points. They're the opportunities to choose that arise. And so what we need to do, again, this is a long-term sustainability view. What we need to do is understand that we have to be flexible and pivot. And isn't that um, a core value and attribute in innovation and technology and business? We have to pivot quickly all the time. The same thing is true for sustainable behavior change. When people come upon a choice point, something that means their plans are unworkable in that moment, instead of going, I can't do it all. It's not worth doing. I'm going to do nothing. That mentality is absolutely a non-starter and a derailer and a behavior change killer. What we need to do is say, okay, what can I do? Um, can I do something different? Can I do it at a different time? Do I eat some of that and not some of something else? I mean, there are all these ways to innovate our plans and solutions in flexible and creative and, and, and really workable, easy ways, but we haven't been taught to think that way. So getting back to Liz, to what you were saying is the, the I would say the biggest challenge in this new um, story and model of creating sustainable behavior change is that we have to learn to notice what the choice point is. And instead of yeah. going down the cognitive distortion of all or nothing thinking, we need to go instead of yes or no, we ask how. And in this new model, something is better than nothing. And we make the perfect and perfect choice because that is what lets us stay on the path, uh, the path and sustainable. I love that. I love that. Yeah. No, this makes makes a lot of sense. So we see choice choice as just one way of exercise in healthy lives. Well, where else can you apply it? So what else are people using the joy choice for? You can apply it in anything. You can apply it with um, healthy eating. You can apply it with sleep. Anytime you're at a point of choice that's unexpected, it's about being in the now the, where you have to pivot. You you can use it. And um, in the book, there's a tool, a three-step tool called POP, um, pause. Again, remember I said the hardest part was the pause part. Um, I'm going to pause right now and turn off this unexpected alarm that shouldn't have gone off right. I feel like that was a setup. No, I, I, I feel like that was I think she set us up. I think she set us up. This is all planned. So. Pause is beautiful yeah. because it, it actually um, gives us the space to harness our attention. It supports our working memory. We take a deep breath. Then what do we do? We, oh, pop open up our options and play. Again, it's not high stakes because something is better than nothing. That reduces the stress and opens up our creativity. Yeah. Um, and the mm -hmm. final part is P, picking the joy choice. And the joy choice is the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing. And how can't we not use that with anything in the moment? So pop it. I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, it's it's so interesting. Like when when people think about those big changes, whether it's like let's take healthy eating. I think also the way we've been trained to think about it is to list out all the things you can't have, right? Like you can't have they like all the things that you love. You can't have pizza. I know that you may love pizza, but you can't have it anymore. And it, you know, in listening to what you're talking about that seems like such a, like that negative point of view, that negative traditional posture, as opposed to thinking about what you can have and being able to say, wow, I actually really like this. I, I can have these healthy options. So when you start to make those decisions and see maybe where some of the traps are, because it, yes. kind, of, it kind of feels like listing out the things that you can't do feels like a trap. That's the perfection and rebellion trap. Those are the decision disruptors um, the decision traps that get in your way. And ex it's exactly right. When you've got all these rules, you have to control yourself, which then leads mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. want to rebel. Right. That, 
Grass is nowhere. You know, the emerging science in this area, um, both for healthy eating and exercise, suggests that being I'm having what's called flexible restraint is more yeah. adaptive than trying to rigidly stick to the plan. So it's about giving ourselves grace in our healthy lifestyles in the same way we do in all the other areas of our life, like parenting, partnering, and professionaling. Yep. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. And we're seeing a lot of folks really do that as they change. And there's just some of the core concepts around behavior design uh, that we've seen over the years as well. Right, trying to apply behavior design to activities and, and, and motions. Um, I, we talked about decision traps. We talked about these other areas. What's your greatest hope regarding the joy choice? Like, where do you want this to go? What do you want people to do with it? And you know, where, where, what do you see in the future for this? Thank you for asking that. My hope is that the joy choice as the perfect and perfect option that lets us do something instead of nothing, staying the path. Who doesn't want to make a joy choice? And it's making the joy choice is really the easy thing to do. So my hope is that this concept goes universal, goes metaversal, so that it becomes the thing that people want to do, that enables them to take care of themselves, which is what we need, not just to maintain our own energy, but to be really the nicest we can be, kindest to people in the world. So when it comes down to it, the way we take care of ourselves determines whether we can, how well we contribute to the rest of uh, the people and the planet. Yeah. And, and before we go, Michelle, I, I mean, I, I read No Sweat, uh, which was, I think, sometime, some years back, right? It sounds like you built on the extension from that research. Uh, what did you learn between No Sweat and this book, like in between? Like, what were the, some of the things that, you know, we got the motivation, got to the fitness, and now we got a joy choice. I mean, what's the title of the third book? Just kidding. <laughs> there's no, I, I, there's no third one. There, I promised my husband there's no third one. Oh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's the joy choice right there. That is the joy choice. She's made it. <laughs> here's what I learned. And this is really important. You know, when I talk about this, really smart people push back and they're like, come on, Michelle. Do we really have to teach people that something is better than nothing? Like we're adults. Like, don't we know that? We so need to, not only do we need to teach people that something is better than nothing because we've all been brainwashed in all or nothing thinking, we have to convert it into a new idea. And that's what the joy choice is. We have to make it about, um, it's more than just uh, supporting our greater eating and exercise goals. It's about realizing who we are so we can best contribute to the world. So we have to inspire people. And that's why I wrote The Joy Choice, because it's not enough to give people strategies. We have to help them want to enact them. That's exactly yeah, what Maine English was talking about, right? It was, a, you know, we there's all those standards. There's all the different things that people could look at for sustainability, for giving back, for that altruism. And so what's the easiest thing to do? Argue about definitions. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's not enough no. to we have to move from the head into the heart. And in the world of behavior change, we've been so stuck on logistics and this strategy and that strategy. But guess where the, the, the most interesting emerging science is coming out about identity and how our behaviors can actually fuel who we are. And again, how we tend to the people and projects we care most about. Love it. No, I think it's something we've always had, but we've never quantified. We're here with Michelle Sagar, um, MPH, PhD, author of The Joy Choice, uh, and more importantly, Activating Movements. So you follow on Twitter at Michelle Sagar, S-E-G-A-R. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Happy Friday. Thank you. All right, Liz. Thought-provoking. Three amazing yeah. guests. Uh, what's your view? Like it, it blows my mind that really, like when when I read the guest list for this show, it was like three separate conversations. But I, I, it blows my mind that it was really one. It was really one conversation about understanding, identifying something that you want to do, identifying those engagements you want to have in the metaverse. You know, identifying that sustainable change that you want to have that you envision you or your organization having, and then making the choice to go do it. I love it. I love it. Wow, this is amazing. 
Well, hey, thank you for the summary and the analysis, right? Next week on episode 292, Tiffany Bova, Global Growth not Evangelist next, at Salesforce. Uh, no, not after 9299, yeah. September 9th. Oh my God, Labor Day. So we're going to take a day off. So September 9th, we got Tiffany Bova, Global Growth Evangelist at Salesforce, Ross Dawson, Futurist. Pala entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and author of five books, Thriving on Overload. Uh, and so we'll see, we'll see you there. So if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Follow us 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, and Bala Ashra will be back. So take care. Thanks for Bye, letting me host, Bala. <laughs>